Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is not here today. He's off at the National Review Ideas Summit. Hopefully he's got some good ones. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review, co-founder of Ricochet and co-host of the Glop podcast on Ricochet, of course, uh, is filling in for Jim today and on Friday. Rob, great to have you. Great to be here. I don't know why. Why are we not at the Ideas Conference? That seems like the kind of thing smart people should be at. I don't I don't get what, where my invitation was. Yeah, what's the message being sent to us here that we're still doing <laughs> yeah, A message received. We don't have ideas. Well, they, they might be right about me, I got to say. <laughs> All right. Well, we're back to our usual format today. The, earlier this week, we had quite a few goods, uh, given the Mueller report and Michael Avenatti and, and different stories like that. But today, we're a little more uh, traditional. Let's start with the good martini. This comes to us courtesy of Reuters. U.S. President Donald Trump on Wednesday called on Russia to pull its troops from Venezuela and said that all options were open to make that happen. The arrival of two Russian Air Force planes outside Caracas on Saturday, believed to be carrying nearly 100 Russian special forces and cybersecurity personnel, has escalated the political crisis in Venezuela. Russia and China have backed President Nicolas Maduro, while the United States and most other Western countries support opposition leader Juan Guaido. In January, Guaido invoked the Constitution to assume Venezuela's interim presidency, arguing that Maduro's 2018 re-election was illegitimate. Trump telling reporters in the Oval Office, Russia has to get out. So, uh, Rob, uh, seems like every step of the way, the Trump administration's doing the right thing here. The fact that the Russians are trying to dig in makes us a little bit worried that this could escalate beyond where we'd <laughs> like it to, obviously. But uh, yeah. what, what do you make of what Trump's doing here? Well, look, you know, you didn't have that many choices. Um, the, the provocations keep coming. It is good news when an American president in the, in the 21st century still believes in the Monroe Doctrine. That's a good thing. We still have that. Look, uh, there's, there's a very complicated dance going on about, about Venezuela because the only way the opposition wins is if America gets involved. And Venezuela is kind of a little pivoting point because Cuba relies on Ven- has relied on Venezuela. But, of course, they're both falling apart now economically. So – it does seem to me like this is the provocation for us to get involved in the regime change there, which is a, another set of problems. So this is a good one, but I think it's leading to a very, very dangerous part, which I'm not sure I, I don't I don't have a solution to it. But Trump is going to be facing what will be at some point a, a huge, huge cry for American troops to go to Venezuela. You know, th- this 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 issue may slip into other columns, uh, into other categories uh, when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. So what's uh, at stake for Russia here? Uh, they've got their friends in the region that they've had for a long time, like the Cubans right. and obviously other uh, socialist regimes, which are not all that infrequent, unfortunately, in Latin America. But uh, other than that, I mean, this is a failed state. You'd think they'd just kind of look the other way and say, oh, well, problems with Venezuela. I guess that's just the way it's going to go. Well, look, this is I mean, you know, Russia is following pretty much the same foreign policy as it did under communism. It just isn't about communism. It's more more bold. The gloves are off. It's really just about territory and influence and mischief making. Um, And they would would love to have a sort of reliable mischief making presence in South America and mischief making presence 90 miles off the coast of Florida. That's what was really good thing for them. Russians always feel like they they don't have any um, ability to project their power overseas. They've felt that way since the czars. So this is like another way to do it. But it's also kind of a low, incredibly low rent way to do it. I mean, you know, 100 people were sent in two planes. Um, this feels more like needling America and needling us 
and making sure that we feel the pressure in to, to get involved in Venezuela than it is about actual Venezuelan geopolitics for the Russians. You know, they don't they can't afford another client. Certainly they, they can't afford two. So their end game really is to make trouble for Americans, which is what they're doing. Let's bring this back to the fact that it's our good martini and the fact that the oh yeah sorry <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but it's good when the when 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 the American pre- when any American president I mean let's just be fair takes a stand and says no we can't have this um, we can't have a foreign power meddling in um, in our hemisphere that's a good thing I think in general but no doctrine I think it was a really good doctrine which I'm glad we have it uh, and then the second thing is that I feel like um, Trump in many ways became president because he articulated a feeling among some conservatives and people on the right or in general that we spent too much time in foreign uh, adventures overseas that didn't have a clear American interest at stake. It's hard to argue that Venezuela and a disaster in Venezuela doesn't have an American interest at stake. And so in many ways, it's kind of uh, good to have a president like Trump who already has established the fact that he doesn't want to have a lot of adventures overseas, but will do what it takes to maintain American security. That's a good thing. All right, let's move to our bad martini now, Rob, and stop me if you've heard this one before. It looks like (laughs) Republicans might not be ready to have an alternative to Obamacare if it goes away. Uh, Of course, it's been a full decade now since uh, Barack Obama took office and Democrats controlled both houses of Congress at the time and they started putting together their plans. It was ultimately signed into law almost exactly nine years ago at this point, March of 2010. And uh, last year, of course, they tried to repeal and sort of replace, or I guess sort of repeal and sort of replace. uh, And that failed. And now they're trying to go through the courts again. And the Justice Department is on board with this effort to strike it down because the John Roberts rationale of uh, the law survives as a tax because of the penalty for failing to comply with the individual mandate has been zeroed out. There's no more tax. There's no more penalty. So therefore, it's unconstitutional. But Politico, President Donald Trump says the GOP is now the party of health care, but Republicans have no real plan to deliver on that. Trump's unexpected demand that Republicans take another crack at replacing Obamacare came on the heels of his Justice Department backing a lawsuit intended to gut the entire law. The last time the party tried to get rid of Obamacare, it cost them control of the House and several state capitals. Those lessons aren't lost on Republicans. They know the more they talk about repealing Obamacare, the more likely it is that the battle over the health law and the popular protections for people with pre-existing conditions drags into the 2020 elections, damaging vulnerable Republicans. They'd rather slow walk the issue while sticking to health care topics that have appeal on both sides of the aisle. So, Rob, this is, let's see, one, two, three, (laughs) four, five, going on six election cycles where Republicans have promised to get rid of this thing and they still don't have a strategy. Well, you know, it's true. It's true. It's because it's so horrible. <laughs> like I, get, I totally get it. I wouldn't want to have a strategy to do this either. You know, th- there is that thing you got to get over, which is it's a mess. And we didn't create the mess. The, the, the Democrats created the mess and, and made it unconstitutional. And so why do we have to fix it if the, you're the Republicans are saying? And there's some value to that, too. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why, why is this our problem? But it is the Republicans' problem because they have to – they've said they're going to repeal it and replace they haven't just said repeal because repeal without replace isn't, isn't a popular option. So they got to replace it with something. And, the, and the, ultimately, the problem is that true replacements for what we call the umbrella term of healthcare are complicated and aren't associated with each other. And, and parts of them will actually look a little like Obamacare, right? I mean, there, there's certain things about Obamacare that we would probably keep if we were going to you know, build a new business, a new healthcare um, a plan from the ground up. 
but also everybody's playing the same game, which is that like the, the if you're a Democrat right now, you are running on this sort of larger, big picture, 50,000 foot issue, which is uh, Medicare for all or some version of Medicare for all, which is a great thing to say because it, it's, A, it's meaningless and B, it's <laughs> utterly unaffordable. Um, and so if you're a Republican, you're looking for what's what's my thing that's also bland and huge and will be satisfying, but won't uh, I won't have to put any details to. Uh, and there isn't one because uh, being against something is more complicated than being for something. So I, I, I sympathize with them. I think they're in a terrible position, but I'm not sure there's a way. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a way out of it, uh, except to um, to come up with. I think the solution is for them politically is to come up with one or two little bits of reform that people agree with and kind of Frankenstein monster the reform um, policy by policy. You know, the, the success that Republicans have had have been like attacking Obamacare policies, right? The mandate, things like that. That, that That's actually a smart move because it isn't global, and but it's not as satisfying. And, you know, people you know who support Republicans, want they want a big moment where Obamacare is repealed and we never have to hear the word again. And I, I you know, that's an impossible thing to happen. I think I think the piecemeal strategy is smart. It just isn't, um, you know, you don't set off fireworks and parades and send fundraising letters off of a piecemeal policy change. Yeah, that's probably right. And uh, the thing I'm hearing most, and it kind of goes back to the Lindsey Graham, Bill Cassidy approach was uh, let's just uh, give the authority back to the states, which on the one hand is good federalism. On the other hand, it's really easy for federal lawmakers to say that so they don't actually have to make the tricky decisions. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's good. That's constitutional. That's all right. The founders knew that <laughs> they they had that they had that already in their heads. Sent it back home. Sent everything back home. Um, but you know, the, but there 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 are federal um, guidelines that are going to obviously be part of this of whatever reform happens, and they should just be conservative ones. And there's there's no reason that you know the problem is that we it's it's not going to be fun, but one or two judicious, like good sounding reforms. Could actually be what they what they you know policymakers would call the the headshot to the to the overarching overall policy. Once you stop forcing people to buy plans that they don't want to buy, that is in many ways the headshot to the policy. It just doesn't it doesn't feel as good as uh, you know a banner and a repeal, and then you get to go on TV and say we did it and it's all over, and uh, it just doesn't. It's just not going to be satisfying. But sometimes really good policy and really good reforms aren't satisfying. That could be. And those who think that just because the uh, penalty's gone, uh, don't assume that John Roberts won't come up with another reason to say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, if, if, you, if, you, if you believe the Constitution is a living document, it, it can say anything you want. It just depends on what, you know, how you woke up that morning. All right. Let's move on to our crazy martini now, Rob. And if there's one thing America needs... It's more Democrats running for president because clearly we don't have enough right now. Uh, Let's go to CNN. Terry McAuliffe is moving closer to a 2020 presidential run. Democrats close to the former Virginia governor tell CNN. McAuliffe has been telling Democratic allies that he is leaning toward jumping into the Democratic presidential race next month, according to three people who have spoken to him. The former governor has long said he would make a decision by the end of March with a potential announcement later in April. McAuliffe's possible entry into the 2020 race would make him the third current or former governor, joining former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper and Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and the only Virginian in the crowded field of more than a dozen Democrats. Quote, I get the sense that he's moving closer, said John Morgan, longtime donor to Democratic causes and McAuliffe's friend. I think he's very close to it. Crystal Carson, McAuliffe's spokesman, said the governor is seriously considering a run, but that he has yet to make a decision. While McAuliffe has spent the last week on a spring break vacation with his family, 
He has also been making calls to donors and longtime friends as he comes closer to making a final decision. One friend described him as, quote, almost ready to jump in. He sees no reason not to, unquote. And, uh, Rob, there was a couple of weeks ago when uh, the flurry of candidates jumping in here, uh, there was an interesting story. I think it might have been over on Free Beacon said a lot of high-dollar Democratic donors are sitting on their wallets waiting to see what Terry McAuliffe would do, which when you look at all these different names in there seems kind of crazy. But since he was the 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 guy who ran the DNC and tapped everybody's wallets for years and years, it makes you wonder if he got in this thing, whether he could become a serious player. Yeah, we, we know one thing about Terry McAuliffe. He knows how to raise money. Um, it, it, this this feel like in the 90s, though, when I read that story, I was like, wait a minute, did I, what happened? <laughs> did, did we lose time here? I mean, it is like the, it is the ultimate nostalgia vote, right? It's not just wanting to have the the, the Clinton 90s again. It's actually trying to you know, recreate them um, like a, with a, you know, Madame Tussauds wax museum. Like, see if we can put enough of those figures together, we can have it. But look, that I, I get it because um, the problem with the Democrats is that they are uh, a party with incredibly progressive uh, popular candidates, uh, but they're still funded by a bunch of rich white guys. And that's a problem because the rich white guys think they know everything because, you know, rich people tend in general to think they know everything. And they kind of are worried because they if you look, if you live in America, if you live in the real country, you easily see a way that Donald Trump is reelected in 2020. If you live in crazy town, it's just impossible to believe that anybody would vote for Donald Trump again in 2020. And so why not? Why not? This is a perfect time to elect a socialist. Say what you like about millionaires. They do tend to like do things like, you know, run businesses. And so they they tend to be more in America than media media progressives. So they tend to like, wait, wait a minute. Like in my state, they say there's a whole lot of votes here for Donald Trump, people that I respect and like. Um, you know, we're not going to beat we're not going to win in in the crucial states that we need to win if we're running a communist, essentially. <laughs> right. And one thing we know about Terry McAuliffe is he ain't no communist. He's a millionaire businessman. Um, and he, and he's, uh, uh, he's the ultimate, probably the most powerfully connected backroom Democrat in America. So he's a perfect choice, a perfect antidote. And he's not old and he doesn't have to do a lot of gaffes like Joe Biden. But there is this, you know, you can see it in the Democratic Party. And you can feel it in there, sort of the tectonic, you know, subterranean moves. And of course, every rich Democrat I know, because I live in Hollywood, they all say the same thing, which is, we could lose this in 2020. And the only way to win it is to appeal to the, some of the voters who voted for Donald Trump. And they're just not persuaded by socialism, but they might be persuaded by a, a zillionaire businessman who was a governor of, of a big state. Um, you know, he, the ultimate uh, alternative to Howard Schultz. Yeah, zillionaire businessmen are all the rage, even though people say they hate them. Uh, a couple of quick uh, addenda here. Jim Garrity and I both live in Virginia, so while we didn't vote for Terry, oh, yeah. Terry McAuliffe, he was our governor for four years. And we have grudgingly come to the realization that uh, in the last decade, out of the last three governors, he's actually the least ethically challenged. Uh, because you had Bob McDonald and his uh, gift problem. <laughs> that is not a high bar, my friend. <laughs> yeah, he, he's the least corrupt cop in the 1933 Chicago Police Department. <laughs> oh, man, Chicago law enforcement. That get, get, get us on a whole well, rabbit trail. I should say the 2019 Chicago <laughs> yes. Police Department. I don't know why I, I thought I needed to be historical here. <laughs> 
You're right. Oh, man. And you mentioned Hollywood. And for folks who don't know, uh, you've worked in Hollywood a number of different ways. You've been a screenwriter and, and that sort of thing there. And so when you talk about flashing back to the 90s, maybe even the 80s, in addition to some people still wanting to get the Clinton gang back together, you also have, of course, these uh, huge interest in, in rebooting 80s and 90s TV shows. So is this an, an, a realization on America's part that the 80s and 90s were really the golden era of entertainment? And it's not just the people who grew up in that era, but it really was the best time. Well, it was the best time for me because uh, <laughs> I was making real money back then. That's, uh, you know, that's the most important thing. I don't know, I don't know how anybody else judges anything else other than that. It looked that it was a great time. I, I actually feel like the, the, the best time is now. I mean, I, I think this is a great time for entertainment. I think you have more choices. But uh, what people complain about now isn't that there's nothing on. It's that there's too much on. Uh, isn't that there's like, ah, everything's terrible. It's like, well, the good stuff I can't find. But it's good. And there's good stuff on. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that as uh, especially as a sort of a you know conservative person with a you know free market bent, um, uh, consumer choice uh, leads to better quality. And um, and you have more choice now, and so you're going to have better quality. Uh, that we, if if only we treated public education the way we treat our entertainment by offering people as many different choices as possible and as many different payment plans as possible, um, and leave it up to them to make a choice. Republicans, are you listening to that on healthcare too? Take that to heart. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, I think, but I think a, a really simple two sentence thing in healthcare would be really, rather than a bunch of policies, a, a two sentence set of principles and then kind of tack it, you know, death of a thousand cuts. Rob, great to have you with us today, and we'll do it again tomorrow. Have a good one. Great to be here. Absolutely. Rob Long, contributing editor at National Review. He's the co founder of Ricochet, co host of the Glop podcast. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.